we were studying verse 7 in which Krishna says that the true insight bestowed by wisdom is revealed in the following qualities. We talked about just making a, you know, printing those qualities out and just having them in front of us as a reminder. And of course, many of these qualities like humility, unpretentiousness, harmlessness, forgiveness, integrity, um, they are qualities that are, I wouldn't say like easy to have, but at least easy to assume ki haan ye sahi hai. <laughs> these make sense to me. But we were looking at some of the more interesting qualities. One, of course, was service to the guru. And we went deeply into it in the last class. Why not just service? Why specifically service to the guru? Then we talked about <clears throat> the perception of sufferings and evils inherent in birth, illness, old age, and death. And that's a, one of the key aspects of wisdom, to understand and perceive that in this temporal reality, the more I cling to the temporal reality, suffering and evil, which is karma continuing, will always be a part of it. So we talked about these two as key ones. Uh, today we'll go with another interesting one, which is non-identification of the ego with one's own children, wife, and home, and everything else that these entail. This is a tough one, isn't it? Non-identification of the ego with one's own children, wife, and home. In the autobiography of a yogi, just last Saturday, we were going through the chapter called, um, what was it? I join, I become a monk of the Swami order. And in that, there was this really powerful uh, paragraph that we went deep into in which Yogananda said, the, you know, the life, the worldly life is indeed the higher path or the, the life of responsibilities in the world is indeed a higher path provided the yogi can maintain a detachment of ego identification in all the responsibilities he has to participate in. And this is what Krishna is saying. And the first um, six chapters are all about this, that nishkam karma, God is the doer. Everything that I have is his. The problem is that we attach ourselves to them. My children, my family, my home, my job, whatever it is. Because I love what he says. And all the things that these entail. Just the very intention. The moment you suggest that one thing is yours. Boy, that entailment continues. There's a fun story. Perhaps we've talked about it. Perhaps we haven't. That Yogananda would tell. Which is called All for a Rag. And it's a long story. But I'll really, you know, speed it up a bit. A hermit goes out into the wilderness to dedicate his life to God, has no possessions whatsoever except his loincloth, except his dhoti. But while he's in the wilderness, you know, rats start chewing and gnawing at his one possession. <laughs> and so he, you know, when a passerby go, um, visits him, he asks him, you know, what is the solution? I, I have nothing, the only one thing that I have, and even that the rats are getting at. And the man says, well, why don't you keep a cat? <laughs> And so the guy said, okay, I'll keep a cat. And then he has a cat. And now the cat's meowing all the time, you know, all around him. And he can't meditate. And he's like, what do I do? I have this cat. Of course, the cat's taking care of the mice. But now I have the cat. And the guy says, well, in that case, you need a cow because you, the cat needs milk. So he has a cow now. <laughs> and so he gets the milk. He feeds the cow. But now he has to take care of the cow and so on and so forth. Eventually, the guy says, now you have to have land because the cow needs to graze and then you need to grow stuff. Now you need, you need a family who will take care of you, you know, the things that you're growing, so on and so forth. 
and the crux being, as Yogananda said, all for a rag. Everything began with the one rag that that man possessed. And that is the story of us. We possess one thing, even one thing identified with you has a kind of a ripple effect that then you have to take care and include many other things as part of that. And it's hard, of course, to withdraw your ego identification, but it's a beautiful thing to think about all these things as belonging to God and have given to you. If imagine if Yogananda were to come to us and say, oh, these are my children, do you mind taking care of them for a while? I mean, we'll take care of them really well. And in fact, there'll be just this little reverential separation, like, oh, we have to take care of them. But we will not really get entangled with them at all, knowing these are my guru's children. If my guru were to give us something and say, this is my television set, will you take care of it? So it doesn't mean we have to be indifferent to our children, which is, which is the hard part on the spiritual path. For people, it's either complete rejection or complete involvement. But Krishna is talking about walking that razor's edge, which is just withdrawing ego identification with these things. And that's the tough part. But if you can learn to do it, and in fact, our families are given to us, everything around us is given to us as an opportunity to practice that. Because if you can't practice it with a phone, if you can't practice it with your television, if you can't practice it with your favorite, you know, set, do you think you're ever going to be able to disidentify from your own body, from your own personality? I mean, how do you think you'll ever disentangle yourself from the commitment you've made to this body and to this name and to this gender and to this age? So that's why it's important. Not because your children are not important and your family is not important and your work's not important. They're very important is what Krishna is saying only in as much as they allow you to practice <laughs> the disentanglement of your ego. So this is a good one. This is an important one. Because from here, many other things will come. Humility comes as from this thing. Non-pretentiousness comes from these things. All the things, when you disengage a little bit, there's a lot of relaxation that comes. And if you can somehow convince yourselves, these are my guru's children. This is my guru's things. This is God's things. Whatever. Whoever it is for you who you know you have a deep reverential relationship with. And see if that shifts the relationship and the energy you share with your possessions, with your family, with your work. The other one which is nice is a love of solitude. Interesting how he just, you know, I mean, Krishna is essentially saying these are the qualities that show that wisdom is established in a person. Love of solitude. And on the flip side, which is the next uh, quality, is disinclination for worldly society. Love of solitude, disinclination for worldly society. They're both not very, they're both non-reactionary, which is an important thing to realize. Sometimes people want solitude, but not for the love of solitude, but for the, I need to get away from, you know, it's more a rejection than an actual acceptance of silence. It's not that they're seeking silence, they're just rejecting noise, and that doesn't work. Love of solitude does not mean a, a rejection of everything else that exists. Love of solitude is deep in your own heart to ensure that your mind remains silent at times. 
that your emotions remain silent. Not that I need to go to a silent place and be so in solitude all the time because the world is just, you know, how it is. The world's going to be how it's going to be. Your love of solitude won't change the world. Your love of solitude will help you realize how much mental chatter there is in your mind. It's only when we're silent, Narayani and I, every Monday we hold a day of silence and we separate ourselves into different bedrooms. And this is a practice we've been doing for the last 12, 15 years. And every Monday you just realize, my goodness, how much energy I spend in the talking, in the thinking, in the, you know, in the engaging with the world. And the solitude that we receive sitting in our room isn't the silence of our room, it's the silence of our being which otherwise is forced constantly into relating to the world. So that's what, don't think that I like to go into nature and I like to go into the mountains, therefore, that's not solitude enough. The solitude you are seeking, which the yogi is seeking, his master said, if you are very sleepy, can't you fall asleep anywhere? Similarly, if your love for God is strong, no matter where God has placed you, you should be able to find him. And that's the kind of, solitude we seek inside ourselves even while the world is chattering all around us there is no compulsion from our side to say i should join this chatter i should add to this noise and that's what happens around us and in that case it's helpful every now and then to in fact go into a outward sense of solitude just so that you attune yourself to it yogananda said seclusion is probably one of the most important practices on the spiritual path and he always recommended at least once a month for a few days to go into seclusion and then once a year for at least a week or two weeks to go into a long period of seclusion so that's another thing that we should start inculcating if we yet haven't already developed that inner love for solitude and then disinclination to worldly society is another, I like the word disinclination and Swamiji goes into it at depth and Narayani, in fact, the last class, the practice she gave us was based on that. And Swamiji says, Krishna didn't say a dislike for worldly. A disinclination is again a very inward reality while you are in the world to be able to remove yourself from it. And again, that's the yogi, that's the yogic way. The renunciate way is to reject. The yogic way is to inwardly withdraw. And that's a power that we have to all develop. Finally, he says, and this is for me another <laughs> very powerful statement, qualities opposite to these virtues are the signs of ignorance. We've seen Krishna do this a few times before. Remember, he would always give the opposite. He would say, Ki, Achha, if you can't understand wisdom, then let me tell you what ignorance is. If you can't understand what good works are, let me tell you what bad works. Because sometimes it's easier for us to see certain things from a different perspective. So the opposite of these virtues, Krishna says, is ignorance. So even if you can't fully understand what is wisdom, sometimes it's helpful to understand, well, what are the opposites of these things? And go through this list and create an opposite and see, ah, oh yeah, now I understand what I'm not doing right. And then you will naturally come to a state of wisdom. So we read this, we read all these things. Now we will continue, which is the 12th verse with a fresh new beginning of this chapter. I will now tell you what knowledge one should pursue. So this is part of the question that Arjuna originally asked. What is true knowledge? What is its objective? 
I will now tell you what knowledge one should pursue, which is true knowledge, which bestows immortality. Okay, what is this knowledge that bestows immortality? Hear what I have to say about the supreme, beginningless Brahman. He who cannot be said either to exist or not to exist, since existence implies a coming into being. You've got these sentences sometimes in here which are like, this is what people say. <laughs> yeah, this is nonsense sometimes. Like, this doesn't make any sense. It's so contradictory, isn't it? He cannot, the supreme, less, supreme Brahman, who cannot be said either to exist or not to exist. Every time I read this line, I'm reminded of Anandamuima's definition of God when somebody asks, who, you know, who is God? And she says, he is and he isn't and neither is he nor is he not. One of those real mind twisters. But rather than kind of keeping it at that really vague thing, you can take anything you want. God is love. He is and he's not. And neither is he only love nor is he not just love. Neither is he all the other things that are not love. And in its sense, it says like, that doesn't make any sense to me. But what if I take something much simpler? An apple. It's sweet. It is. And it's not. That's not the only definition of an apple. And neither is it not just sweet. And neither is it only sweet. And I take anything. This person, Narayani, she is, you know, whatever, compassionate. She is and she's not. And neither is she, nor is she not. Anything in the world you take, it will fulfill this definition. Because nothing is only just. And especially the experience of Brahman is so far beyond any intellectual comprehension. And that is why Krishna again and again is trying to bring Arjuna to the experience. He's trying to bring him to the yogic path. Not just to, ah, you know, how wonderful these words are. Because you're not going to be able to understand Brahman. When somebody asks uh, Sri Yukteswar one of these, you know, really highly philosophical questions, and Sri Yukteswar's simple answer was, leave certain things to be <laughs> answered in the infinite. When you have the experience of Samadhi, that's when you should ask these questions. You know, because otherwise we're just these Mr. Smarty Pants trying to figure out really nonsensical things, which is like, what difference does it make? What is Brahman? What is Satchitananda? But you can't figure out what an apple is. You know, have you figured out what an apple truly is? Have you figured out how you digest the food in your stomach? Have you figured out why blood courses through your veins? I mean, what have you figured out? Science can't even figure out why we yawn. They've got six different <laughs> versions of why they think we yawn. So, you know, these questions just don't mean anything. And it's lovely that Krishna expresses that. This Brahman is said both to exist and not to exist. Already cutting away any concept that he might create to say, let me explain to you, you know, the really intricacies of this Brahman because then if I can just explain it to you, then you'll just get it because you won't get it. And that's what Krishna is explaining as true knowledge is the experience of Brahman, not the understanding of Brahman. He dwells, however, he says, okay, I've, I've left it at that. He both exists and doesn't exist, which is confusing enough. 
Well, let me help you kind of bring it down a little bit more. He dwells, however, omnipresent in the universe, pervading all heads, eyes, ears, faces, everywhere. So that's again, if you, you want to find him, just look all around you. He's everywhere, in every eyes, in every face, in every ear, everything you hear is him, everything you see is him, everything you experience in touch is him, shining in all the sense faculties, yet transcending them. The mainstay of everything, yet attached to nothing. Above the three gunas, yet experiencing everything through them. He goes and explains this line much more in detail further on, but this is a very key aspect here. Above the three gunas, where of course, trigunarahitam rahitam is, is another definition for God beyond the three gunas, yet experiencing everything through them. This entire universe is a combination of the three gunas, all creation. And as I said, Krishna will talk about prakriti in those terms. And Brahman is experiencing, Brahman itself can't even experience the world directly. Can't even experience creation directly and experiences everything through these three gunas. Remember when we talked about in our previous class, we talked about the example of sleep and the dreamer and the dream. It's like in the dream, the only way the dreamer can experience the dream is through that one person by identifying with him and giving him an egoic reality. Otherwise, the dream itself doesn't exist for the dreamer. Whereas, that dream person is not experiencing the dream. The dream is being experienced by the dreamer. But it feels like it's being experienced by the person in the dream. And this is a great dichotomy. And this is why spirit, Satchitananda, and Prakriti, Purusha and Prakriti, as Krishna will now explain, this is why they live as two separate realities. One exists to experience the other through the gunas. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Within and without all that exists, both animate and inanimate, the nearest of the near, yet so subtle as to be imperceptible. Yeah, I love this one. The nearest of the near. God is so close. Master said, he's closer to you than your own thoughts. Yet, so subtle as to be imperceptible. I mean, this is the greatest trick that God plays on us. He's everywhere, yet none of us can find him. I mean, he's like right here, and yet we don't feel him. Yet we're saying, and we have to go through all these long yogic practices just to get a tiny glimpse of him, even though he's everywhere. He's just, these are the things that infuriate the yogi. <laughs> he is the indivisible one, appears divided into countless beings, maintaining, then destroying their forms, and then manifesting them anew. The light of lights he is beyond all darkness, all knowledge, whether knowable or aspired to. He's beyond all knowledge. He is forever seated in the hearts of all. And that's an important thing. He's not as much in the mind as he is in your heart. And through the heart, 
he's perceptible only as a feeling, as an experience, not as an understanding, not as an intellectual reality. And that's again very important for us to know. And that is why the path of bhakti plays such an important role because it deals primarily with the heart and not with the mind, even though here we are in jnana. But Krishna himself is saying, it's in your heart that you will find him. And that's why Yogananda said, this is our receiving station. This is where we will receive God's presence, even though this is where we transmit our call to him from. I have briefly described here the field, which is the chetra, the nature of wisdom and the object of wisdom. Possessed of this insight, my devotee enters into me. Now Krishna begins the discussion on Prakriti and Purusha. This is verse 19. Know that both, both Purusha and Prakriti are without a beginning. Know also that all the modifications and qualities, which are the gunas of nature, are born of Prakriti. Now Prakriti is the outward manifestation. Here, it'll be helpful to reintroduce a concept we talked about in the past, but probably has slipped from all our minds, which is the concept of Om Tat Sat. And again, we can understand it from the perspective of the dream and the dream, the dreamer and the dream. But first, Om Tat Sat. Om is Prakriti, manifestation itself. Sat is Brahman, completely removed, separated from his manifestation, even though the manifestation is a fragment of his own consciousness. I want to go back to, just for a moment, which was that chapter we went to. Chapter 10, if you remember, in uh, verse 40, where Krishna says, the manifestations of my divine attributes are without limit. This brief declaration merely hints at them. And he had given this long thing, I'm this, I'm that, I'm this. And then he goes on to say, what need have you, however, O Arjuna, for the manifold details? Know this only. The unchanging and everlasting I permeate and sustain the entire cosmos with but a fragment of my essential being. So that's important to realize that the majority of God's consciousness really rests as Brahman and our entire manifestation, which we think is like the end all and be all of our being, is but a fragment of his consciousness. Again, think about the dreamer and the dream. How much of the dreamer's consciousness is in the dream? Very little, because the majority of his consciousness is still identified with the body, still running his heart, still running all the you know, aspects of the body and his being, remembering all past lives, remembering everything. I mean, that's an identity that holds the majority of his consciousness. And the dream itself, just a tiny fragment. But when he's in the dream, then all that matters is the dream. So you've got Sat, the Brahman, the dreamer himself. Then you've got Om, which is the entire manifestation, which is Prakriti. And then you've got Purusha. And Purusha is Brahman in manifestation, which means, in this particular case, the soul. The identification expressing and manifesting through each individual aspect. Because in your dream, even though you've created from your own consciousness the 100 people in your dream, the 500 trees in your dream, or whatever it is, 
but each of them hold an individual identity. When you meet somebody in your dream, you're meeting one tiny fragment of your own consciousness expressing through that person. And when you meet another person in your dream, that's a separate fragment of your consciousness expressing through this person. And they're two different. Even in your dream, you recognize them as completely different. And that is Purusha. And that is Tat. So Om Tat Sat. Manifestation, Brahman, Purusha. And this play is going on. These three aspects exist in us, exist in the entire universe. And so it's helpful for us, even when we deal with the world, to recognize where this is coming from. There is Brahman in us, completely removed, just witnessing it all. There is Prakriti in us, which is where the three gunas manifest through us, where we'll talk more about. And then there is Purusha in us, experiencing Prakriti through the gunas. Because as we said, it's not the ego in your dream that is experiencing the dream. It is the dreamer behind the dream experiencing the dream. The ego is the filter through which the dreamer accesses the dream and makes sense of the dream. I know these are like, what am I going to do with this information? But Krishna has put it in here, so we're going to have to you know, go deep into it and at least try to understand why he is saying such amazingly deep concepts. Why is he putting it into our thought process? Why does he want us to know this? Because according to Krishna, this is true knowledge. Understanding these things will provide us with the wisdom, at least provide us with the way to deal with this dream nature that we are so convinced is our only reality. Material cause and effect are the product of Prakriti. Joy and sorrow are the product of Purusha in man. Very interesting. When I read this, I had to think for, about it for a moment. I was like, Huh, I would not have guessed that to be true. <laughs> Let's read it again. Material cause and effect are the product of Prakriti. Matlab, outward jo karma chal rahe, bahar ka, circumstance, is the product of Prakriti. Joy and sorrow, which then Swamiji explains as the mental experience of those effects, are the product of Purusha, the soul in man. This is where we come back to the you know, remember we talked about man, buddhi, hankar, chitta. Chitta is the joy and sorrow. It is when the soul gets identified with the material cause and effect that he experiences joy and sorrow. But it is the soul's ability to experience. It is not the ego's ability to experience. But when the ego gets attached to the effect, to the cause, to the karma, to the circumstance, to the problem, to the great awesome thing that's happening in their life, that they experience joy or sorrow. But it's wonderful to think that both these feelings are coming from the Purusha. Now the Purusha experiences them as the same. To him, nor joy means much, nor sorrow. They are purely an experience. In the scriptures in India, to the question, why did God create the universe? They give an answer that's not at all satisfactory, but essentially explains this very subject. They say, God created the universe so that he could experience himself through many. Now, again, it's just like, well, why did you want to experience yourself through many? But those questions will never end. 
But this is what's happening. The Purusha can only have the experience of joy or sorrow if he's involved in Prakriti. Otherwise, Brahman has no such experience at all. Brahman, in fact, is attributeless, formless, nameless, <laughs> completely, it just, it's just pure bliss. But to understand and feel the ramifications of his own consciousness, the Purusha is created in all manifestation. Yogananda said every atom is endowed with individuality. In every atom, a portion of God's consciousness rests, experiencing that atom through that Purusha. And so you've got the universal Purusha, you've got the individual Purusha. The individual Purusha is called the soul. The universal Purusha is, of course, called Purusha himself, which is God in creation. That part of God's consciousness that relates to Prakriti and experiences himself through Prakriti. Purusha acting through Prakriti and the soul acting through the body, being the universal and the individual, both experience impersonally the gunas born of nature. It is attachment to the gunas which cause men to return to earth in good or evil wombs. Let's read that once again, just the first two lines. Purusha acting through Prakriti, which we've been talking about, the soul expressing itself through the body, through the manifestation, experiences the gunas born of nature. It is attachment to the gunas then which cause, you know, of course, our birth and rebirth and death and so on and so forth. Let's talk about the gunas just for a moment because the chant that we did is a beautiful explanation of the gunas. Purusha is like the vast ocean and this is an example that many saints give, which is of the waves and of the ocean. Purusha is like the vast ocean. With its waves, it's the same. Without its waves, it's the same. It's untouched. It really doesn't care. It doesn't matter to it. Prakriti, Yogananda said, is like a storm. The storm of Maya, in fact, itself. And it's the storm that whips up on the surface of Purusha, on the surface of spirit. It whips, whips up these waves. Now, to understand the gunas, we can see how the waves work. The waves that are just and that are, that are the closest to the ocean is the sattva guna, sattva tattva. And that aspect that is farthest away from the ocean when the wave moves as far out as it can, that is the tamasic quality, tamas. Essentially, the gunas are degrees of separation from spirit. Sattva is the closest to spirit. Tamas is the farthest away from spirit. And Rajas is the activating, the energy that pushes it in one direction or the other. Think about it in meditation in this way. Absolute stillness of your body is Sattva. Restlessness is Rajasic. And a bent spine is Tamasic. When you're still with your spine straight, it takes energy, it takes rajas, but the quality of sattva is stillness, calmness, silence. 
if only rajas is there then it's restless there's energy for sure but it's restless it doesn't it has no place to go it's not directed and then when the energy goes down and it rests down that becomes tamasic and tamasic can look like sattva sometimes because even in here i could be still and quiet and i'm not doing anything but this is furthest away from god this is closest to god and in everything there is tamas rajas sattva in everything every thought is one quality or the other every food is one quality or the other every person is one quality or the other every color is one quality or the other and most of them are not one or the other but combinations of all three and it's all just relative and this is in fact the duality rajas is just the moving energy but the duality is really between sattva and tamas so it's these degrees that we want to tune into and work with once when swami kriyananda was with yogananda and he kind of looked into yogananda's eyes with this deep gratitude because yogananda had just given this really really deep and profound you know whatever talk and he was just saying thank you master you know and you could just see swami ji was just like <sighs> completely in love with yogananda and all yogananda says is just a tiny bulge on the ocean and that's all he saw himself i'm just this tiny bulge on the ocean i'm just this little separation for us we wouldn't even see that bulge but a master even to hold a body and come into existence has to just separate himself from spirit a little bit and that's all they see themselves as that tiny bulge on the ocean we're like these big waves on the ocean so happy to be aha look at me and the further away you are you're no longer even aware that below you is a vast ocean you don't even remember where your power is coming from in the first place to lift you and hold you this high and so that awareness is just very very important for us as i said these gunas are everywhere yogananda said there are entire planets that reflect certain gunas entire galaxies even as far as to say it is from the tamasic galaxies that disease and pest and toxins come through and then he said earth is a rajasic planet <laughs> in a very rajasic galaxy so we are all about rajas it's all about energy but the good thing about energy is then we can direct it one way or the other better to have some energy than to have none at all so it's important to understand the gunas and it's helpful to ask ourselves what am i expressing right now what am i experiencing right now and it's also helpful because the gunas work in a certain way if you're in a tamasic state you're not going to get into a sattvic state suddenly it means okay if i have no energy the first step is move energy so when you feel dull and when you feel tired and when you feel bored you know don't go and try to meditate immediately first get up and walk a little move a little get some energy going energize then sit to meditate because you're never going to go from tamas to sattva if you sit in meditation with that consciousness of tamas you'll just go subconscious or you'll just play out your own little desires through your mind and when you're restless and there's a lot of energy then you know the next step is to take it to sattva before that energy drops before you get tired from the restlessness and slip into tamas and so okay i need to which means i need to focus this energy and i need to direct it towards greater calmness greater expansion greater joy service and so that's how we work with all these gunas all the time just being aware 
And remember, it's very helpful to have this definition. The gunas are the degrees of separation from spirit. How far you want to be from spirit, how close you want to be from spirit is entirely up to you. Swamiji uses another example to say, if, if spirit were a diamond inside a, one option is to be inside a plastic transparent pouch where you can see spirit and so the separation is just very little or in a translucent pouch where you know there is something inside but you can't quite make out what it is or in an opaque pouch where you have no idea what's inside. The diamond, he says, in all three cases remains the same. Spirit remains unchanged, but it's our ability to perceive spirit that changes. So when we're in sattva guna, our ability to perceive God's presence becomes heightened. So therefore, when you're in kindness, which is a sattva guna quality, you'll naturally be able to tune into God more easily. When you're in rudeness, which is a tamasic quality, you won't be able to experience God as easily. Not to say that God isn't also present in the rudeness, which is the weird part that he is, but your separation from him is more pronounced. And that's what we have to watch out for. Because people who are too intellectual, they become indifferent because they say, God's in the good, God's in the bad, kya farak pad rahe? Farak pad rahe, tumhe farak pad rahe. God ko farak nahi pad rahe. God remains the same. You don't. Your awareness of the divine diminishes when you go towards Thomas. And that's what we have to watch for. In fact, that's a good place for us to also stop. We just, I mean, this one's been a little, <laughs> a little heavy one, hasn't it? Like some of them are more joyful and playful, but this one, because we're entering into the Jnana Yoga phase, mm. I imagine as we go further, we'll be working with heavier and heavier and grander and grander concepts. But it's just important for us to say, this is, how do I relate to this concept? Because sure, you want to know about Om Tat Sat, but how are you manifesting Om Tat Sat every day in your life is what's really important. I was thinking about what Krishna says at the beginning of the importance of our love for solitude. Then he goes on and moves to another stanza talking about he's the nearest of the near. And then now we are ending with the gunas and how to remain in that sattvic state. And I was thinking, how can I put these three <laughs> concepts together that really struck in my mind? And I was thinking, it will be very good and kind of a challenge for ourselves throughout this week if we can start developing that love for solitude because if throughout the day we make a point to, you know, every couple of hours or every hour just to go and leave the room, leave the place where we are and go to a completely different place, space, bedroom where you are completely alone, pause for a moment, even just a few seconds, and make that connection and what it means to be in solitude, what it means to feel God nearest of the near within you. You don't necessarily need to meditate because here we are talking about the practice of solitude and that's something very different and to feel comfortable in an environment where other 
energies doesn't influence your state of consciousness, your mind, your energy. So what I'm talking here is like physically you go to a place, you, you know, go to another space where you be, you can be alone for a couple of seconds, make that connection and then check your mind and where is it? Is in my rajasic space where I'm planning what I'm going to do next? I'm in my tamasic space where I'm judging something that just happened or I don't know what's right now. I'm just, you know, like kind of a little bit negative or do I make an effort to just shift my mental state and remain in that sattvic consciousness by simply aligning those three aspects. The enjoyment of solitude, that solitude lifts me like almost suddenly to that space where I can feel God's presence within me. And then I make, I bring this even a step farther, just making a conscious effort that my mind is in that sattvic space where it doesn't judge anything, where it's just simply in perfect peace and rest, enjoying the moment of solitude, silence, and that perfect peace. This is a practice that we should start integrating daily to the point that when the time comes for us to have perhaps longer periods of seclusion, longer periods of silence, it will become easier for us to enjoy that and to integrate in our daily lives. I would say when you are in that moment of solitude, don't get restless, don't do something else, just for a minute. You know, align those three concepts within you and see what it does for your body, for your mind, for your heart. And you would see that gradually, slowly, eventually, you will be craving for those moments. And they will become a part of who you truly are. And wherever you go, you, you will develop a, an aura, a magnetism around you that you won't be so easily affected by the chaos and by the people that you are surrounded because you would have trained yourself how to remain at perfect peace in your inner, inner castle. So I would say that perhaps this week, uh, what's going to be all about is the practice and the enjoyment of solitude and what it does to your nervous system, to your state of, of mind and to your heart. Uh, and see if this is something that you can make it a reality. <laughs>